Welcome to this week's Incident FM. So this week is a special week. We are going to be joined by Matt from Zigloo. So Zigloo were actually one of our very, very first customers. So hold a special place in our hearts. And Matt has been a fantastic advocate of the product and company throughout. So Matt, genuinely, really, really delighted to have you here. Thank you for having me. It's been a, well, it's a pleasure to join you, but it's also been a pleasure to uh, be on the journey of, is it nearly two years now that we've been using Instant IO since the more private beta? Yeah, yeah, exactly. A long old time. Lots of stuff's changed, lots of stuff's happened. And in fact, lots maybe that's a... As well on your side. That's, that's well, been incredible to watch. Yeah, it's gone from, from three founders sort of hacking away on a product to being a proper company with proper teams doing lots of things all over the place. So yeah, definitely a fun journey for us. But I think I think also a pretty fun journey for you on your side. So when you when we first spoke to you, I think you were engineer at Zigloo, right? And now you are you are not engineer. So maybe like we could kick off with like a bit of a background on like Zigloo, the company, and your journey through Zigloo, if that sounds good. Yeah, so Zigloo is a regulated e-money issuer, a fintech with a vision to be the cool home for your money, I think was our strapline when I joined. And But we've had products largely in the crypto space, actually, to begin with. But I joined because I wanted to create opportunities for people to have new ways of seeing their cash. And we've, we've launched some um, innovative products over our time. Perhaps right now we're in the middle of a crypto winter, and that's obviously leading to a bit less appetite than there would have been before for those products. But yeah, just a, I'm more on the tech side and more see the tech integrations and capabilities as being my bread and butter. I joined Zigloo in the height of COVID in June 2020, when most companies were not hiring. But I was looking for a challenge and Zigloo came along. My background's really in kind of platform and infrastructure engineering. So I've held roles SRE, SRE team leads, and everything that kind of goes along with that. I think we're now seeing in the industry a, a split between the SRE hat and the platform and cloud engineering style hat. But I guess I, I probably bridge both. And I joined Zigloo as a platform engineer, as a lead in that team. One of my first and actually proudest moments as an engineer was when I came in and on week two, day one, someone said, hi, we'd like you to integrate with MasterCard so we can build a card proposition. Please go, you have two weeks. <laughs> <laughs> About four months later, we do use a payment processor that sits um, in the middle, although this isn't a fintech podcast, so I won't go into all the details, but suffice to say, I wanted to come in to work in the fintech space so I could understand some of the fun and career building opportunities. I'm picking my words very carefully. <laughs> yeah, being very selective about the words you're using. <laughs> Associated with working with, let's say, APIs that were designed in the 80s and haven't really changed. And basically all this legacy, but it keeps one of the most important things moving, i.e. the economy. And we all take it for granted that we go into a shop every day, we flash our card on the payment terminal, we flash it on the tube barrier, you can do this all around the world as well, you know, and it's this completely interchangeable medium. But how does it work? You know, I've, I've always been that type of person since the year dot. In fact, my mum says, oh, you were bored at the age of one. You know, I've wanted to take things apart. <laughs> I, want to, I want to understand how they work. You know, I do believe in the engineer's motto that if it's not broken, take it apart and fix it and put it back together again. And I just wanted to see behind the scenes. And this gave me the opportunity to, to do that with connections to the, the full gamut of payment networks and financial networks that exist within the UK. So yeah, long story short, I came to Zigloo as an engineer. We did a whole bunch of stuff, building quite a novel card integration. And then 
over time, one thing led to another. I ended up heading up the cloud platforms team, so setting our cloud platform strategy. And actually, we did a whole ton of stuff to significantly improve our reliability and modularity, including January 2021, just before we adopted Instant IO. I remember we did a cloud to cloud migration from an old tech to a new tech with about five seconds of downtime, which was a very proud moment in my career. And that was basically just to do the cut over, essentially, you know, there's always going to be a little gap there, but it, it was minor and nobody noticed because it was 2am. And then the CTO of the business who was here when I joined a great guy called Hoos, who I have a ton of respect for, he decided to move on and business needed a CTO. And after a lot of searching, I stepped into the role and stepped into the role at a really interesting time for the company. And it's been a, a journey to build a team. It's not always been easy. And obviously in this role, it's very much a leadership role. I've had to take a step back from doing engineering, perhaps not as much as I should have done because I still have that desire to like be hands-on and write code. And I realized I was trying to do that rather than my actual job sometimes. But, you know, that's that's how I keep myself fresh and current. But yeah, building a team set in the technical direction, making some really difficult decisions sometimes you know my natural tendency is to be everyone's friend but actually as a leader you can't necessarily please everyone all the time you have to do the right thing for the business but i'm very privileged and humbled to have had the opportunity to do this before even the age of 30 to lead a you know a business through this and through some of the change that we've gone through over this time so what does the evolution of the team look like alongside you sort of stepping into cto and, and the journey at zigloo yeah, so we had really the change that we've made in the team. We've made probably three changes. And I always say that I always say three and I start enumerating two and I can guarantee I'll get to the end of this. And then I'm going to say I forgot what the third was. It's, it's always the way. Yeah, 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 it's all good. We'll help you with the third. We'll make it up on the fly if needs to be. <laughs> when I stepped up to CTO, we had a very kind of monolithic, very early startup culture. The team was split into front-end, back-end, QA, and cloud platforms. And there were kind of hard barriers between them. You know, the old, not quite the old school dev and ops split because cloud was doing development work and back-end was doing operations work. So we didn't have that typical problem. But they all spoke different languages. Well, they all wrote different languages, I should say. But maybe that means that the humans speak different languages they don't always understand as well. And there was very much a handoff culture between the teams. And one of the big changes that I wanted to make was to move to the scale-up model where you end up with more integrated teams, more cross-functional teams. I think that's the standard in our industry today. But it didn't make sense in the very early days of the company for it to be built like that because you put everyone together who speaks the same language they all have a single mission they just get on and do it and the coordination overhead and process overhead perhaps isn't as great as in subsequent times when you then end up needing to think more about think more deliberately about what it is you're building and respond a lot more to the customer feedback that you're now receiving because you have customers and have the opportunity to be nimble and respond to emerging business demands so really moving to that cross-functional squad structure combined with rolling out more effective agile and i think in this in our industry everyone says agile in air quotes everyone has a different interpretation of agile and i've certainly worked everywhere from you know scaled enterprise agile to well agile is just a free-for-all animal farm just get on with it style thing but we we very deliberately wanted to empower engineers to have a say so that their view on how complex something was and whether it was the right solution actually was valuable because i I firmly believe that engineers are not programmers. There is a distinction. You know, they're not here just to pick tickets up off of a board and move them through some swim lanes and ship the code. But they're actually 
critical part of the definition of the problem. And perhaps even if someone else defines the problem, they're a critical part of defining the solution. And I think we've been very successful in, in doing that internally. It wasn't the easiest transition. And it certainly can be difficult at times to sell people a, a story of building an agile culture. When you start to talk about, well, it does it means that not everything's going to have a deadline, for example. Um, you can't necessarily guarantee that you're going to ship on a certain uh, cadence and schedule, but we will ship as early as we possibly can when things are at the quality that they are. Um, and moving that that responsibility and capability into the tech team has been quite honestly really brilliant. Combined with, it's reduced my workload significantly to the point where actually when I first took over the team, basically everything, it was very early startup, everything went through me or my head of engineering. And we kind of, we were very much day to day working with who's doing what and, and being operational. And now I quite genuinely just sit back sometimes and go, I have kind of an idea of what's going on but i don't know the ins and outs i don't know the technical detail i get involved where i can add the most value or i can contribute to some major architectural decision but i don't need to be across a color change in the ui to change the color of a button right like that can just happen in the team and i trust my team to get on with it as well that's another word we don't hear very often but trust is vital and the third thing, I've actually remembered the three things I was going to talk about. We brought in a separation of engineering management from team leads. So a belief that I have and one that I think is shared, but not universally, is that as you grow, it's vitally important that you give people the opportunity to grow in their career horizontally. Or I, I call it horizontally. You need people to be able to remain at the individual contributor track, but to be recognized for their increasingly senior and senior contributions in terms of technical leadership, technical influence, the responsibilities and the accountability that they carry, and ultimately their ability to transform business goals into technical deliverables and technical solutions. And so many businesses, and I'm not sure if this is a UK thing, but it's the US thing, because the US companies definitely get this horizontal versus vertical promotion track right, in my view, whereas I see it much less okay. But it's so important that people have that opportunity. And I see so many businesses saying, oh, you need to become a manager. You need to manage people. You need to take on all this responsibility that is orthogonal to actually what made someone a good engineer in the first place. And, and by making them a manager, you, in many cases, take away what they're very good at and the value they're contributing to the company. And I've certainly seen people leave businesses because their only opportunity for promotion was to move into people management or they've given that and they've found it's a poison chalice. So... I really wanted to separate those tracks and make sure that there was an opportunity for everyone to move appropriately within the business and where it went. So we've got an engineering management function that I'm incredibly proud of and actually has driven so much change in the business in the um, six months or so since we've had it in place. And that has really vindicated the decision to go down that track and create opportunities for everyone in the team. Yeah, that's super interesting, Matt. And I guess I couldn't echo more strongly some of the challenges that you've just outlined. I think the way that we've built the early team here at Instant IO is like basically went through a very similar journey to the one you've just described at my my previous company and sort of had a lot of burned fingers and scars and learnings from that and kind of naturally brought all of that to Instant IO and made, made a huge difference here. So yeah, big plus one to the to the shape of team you've just outlined. And I think particularly sort of splitting out that EM tech lead, not overloading people and kind of making sure that people can follow the journey that feels most natural to them as opposed to the kind of I want progression and therefore I must is sort of 
a bit of an anti-pattern, I think, in a lot of teams and sort of making sure people can do the job that feels amazing to them without having to kind of carry additional baggage is, is absolutely the, well, I don't know, opinion here, but it's like, I, to me, absolutely the right one. So, um, yeah, that's that's awesome. I guess one thing I'd be interested in is kind of what prompted you to look at Instant IO and was that part of that journey? Because, so for context for me, like one of the challenges of starting to split teams is suddenly you introduce this like overhead of coordination and communication and suddenly it's not like you have one team that knows everything. Like, was that a factor at all or did you come looking to us for totally independent reasons to some of the team evolution stuff you just you just mentioned? I think when opportunity knocks and someone builds a door, sometimes you walk through that door. <laughs> nice. You should uh, come work for our, our marketing team at some point. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. oh, I'm not a marketer. <laughs> Unless you want truth and honesty from uh, marketing, which actually is probably the right way to market. But... Yeah, probably what we should be aiming for, I think. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, think that I think I've done case studies in the past for that might be on our website where you did you were one of our first case studies we really appreciate it i remember this where we were doing the thing in slack of saying we have an incident we need to go incident hyphen oh what was the last number 34 oh no that channel's gone oh 35 oh no that one's oh 36 there you go and you create the channel and some wise alec pops up and says yeah but instant 36 had an underscore not a hyphen in it so you've actually just duplicated the instant number and you know you, the <laughs> whole pain of managing incidents was not good and i fundamentally believe that incidents are not a bad thing i think i'm in good company by saying that you know incidents are in my view either you know emergent from just complex systems and you can't predict them or they're the price you pay for moving fast and in an agile organization sometimes you're going to hit problems but as long as you remain within your overall quality bounds and goals then that's absolutely okay and i think with that thesis in mind there needs to be an effective way to manage incidents and we'd looked at and played with the early tool that i know chris wrote at monzo that i knew from when i met chris at srecon in dublin all those years ago before covid was a thing and we'd looked at self-hosting that but in an early stage startup you just don't have the time to go and spin up special systems that are not part of your core purpose so while we had experimented it just hadn't gone anywhere and, and nobody really wanted to own running the thing that absolutely had to be mission critical and bulletproof but you only called on it when an incident happened which actually means the sla on the thing needs to be far higher than your overall system because you just don't touch it very often then instant io came along with the early private beta and i think it just played very much to me and my lead cloud engineer dean's um, desire for how we believe companies should own respond and manage incidents and you know we really wanted to support the mission that you were on to share that love for the with the world i guess and, and build a product that actually can can achieve that effectively and sustainably and build a culture within organizations that's the one that we all collectively on this call would be proud to work within i think there are many aspects to the product that really help us there are aspects that perhaps we're also a little bit too small to benefit from just because our instant management practices are still perhaps more nascent than you would have in a a significant organization with hundreds of engineers when you have 20 engineers you tend to get people wearing multiple hats necessarily and um, particularly when you say the instance at 1am and you're sort of making that judgment of do i wake people up or do i respond with fewer people so it, there's definitely differences to the instant approach that I would adopt if I was in a 200 person organization, for instance. But then we also perhaps don't have as many. So, you know, the quantity versus quality of response also becomes a, a factor here. And the other thing that I realized was that 
internally, the only signal that people had as to quality of production and quality of response was days since last incident. I know that sounds like the sort of thing that you would see in The Simpsons or, you know, some other like, you know, animated comedy. But, you know, it's like, oh, you know, zero days and the ticker ticks back round and that's a bad thing. And largely that was because there was no mechanism for communicating severity of incident, um, impact of incident, communicating how the process was going through the incident, because it wasn't easy for people to do that. One of the skills that I have come to value is the quality of written word, particularly over COVID. And I know that many engineers struggle to express perhaps the detail and nuance when they're also in the middle of like, I need to resolve this problem with code. Oh, but now I need to go and write three paragraphs about what's happening. And it's sort of, there's a lot of uncertainty and and difficulty to convey that to non-technical stakeholders. And just adopting a tool that encourages you to do the right thing and makes doing the right thing the lowest friction option and reminds you you need to post an update that's actually really valuable when you're in that high stress situation so for all those factors we adopted it i guess i guess it's run by some great people as well but don't tell them that oh wait they're up there on this call <laughs> the very best the very very best people i hear i hear matt um the the thing, the thing you were mentioning about like days since last incident reminds me there was an engineering director at monzo who in the middle of covid he used to dial into meetings <laughs> and sort of in the background of his of his video stream was this very scrappy handwritten note which was like days since last pandemic zero and just every time I dialed in, I was like, oh, that's the little bit of humor that I need to get me through this, this situation. That's interesting though, that, that point you make around folks who are in the middle of like fixing things and the tension that exists between like that and the need to communicate because it's something that like, so we use Incident.io at Incident.io when we have our own incidents, which is a bit sort of inception-y. But I find still with a tool like ours where the prompts are there and, you know, all the right things are kind of happening from a product point of view, it's really, really hard for humans to switch between those two modes. It is just genuinely tricky. I mean, how do you folks think about that? Like, how do you, do you find that a problem at all? Is that like a struggle or is it, you know, are you at the point where it's, you know, happening smoothly? I think we have a split of people within the team. We have people who are naturally content going and looking in the database and figuring out why this line of code's broken. And we have people who are content with communicating up and you sort of get a natural division of labor almost within an incident where people bias one way or the other. But I would say that one of the challenges that we have is we'll always spin up an incident call for a major incident. And sort of the incident call can move so quickly that it, it can often be difficult for someone to scribe and to take the notes that they really want to within the call and to communicate that back to the instant channel. And it, it, finding that balance between understanding why the incident is happening. And as your system gets bigger, we've certainly had incidents. Well, I guess there's, there's two things that have happened, I've noticed. As the system has got bigger, we've had incidents that we've gone, we're not really sure why this is happening. We perhaps know how to mitigate the impact of it, but we it's not sustainable to have someone sat there running a script every five minutes to purge a queue or something. And you get very much that emergent distributed systems behavior that it can be difficult to get to the bottom of. So how do I communicate something that I don't know? That's tough. And then a personal reflection that I've had, and it was in that same incident when this, when this first occurred, was that I actually can't get involved in the technical details always. I need to actually be able to just back off and trust in the process and the system and the people that are responding. And I guess that means that I put more emphasis then on receiving the communication and the updates. And perhaps at the time we weren't 
as mature in making those updates. So I was having to chase them a little bit. But fortunately, I'm an engineer as well. So when engineers speak to me in engineer language, I can translate and I can translate that to to business stakeholders. I guess there's a new opportunity here for uh, you to integrate with uh, ChatGPT and just, you know, slash, slash incident, write update that states this. And yeah, yeah. Uh, even better, we could we could go one step further, right? Which is just like tell us what's wrong, and we just proxy through the chat GPT and say, "How do you solve a problem where?" And then just insert, and then instant IO magically tells you how to you know bring your database back online. It's a really interesting one though, because I remember a big turning point in my career. You know, I think let's not talk too much about safety one, safety two here, unless we really want to geek out about resilience engineering. I don't know. That sounds right up Chris's street. He loves a bit of safety one, safety two. We'll lose Pete. Pete will just be like, come on, come on, guys. <laughs> <laughs> but there is always this tendency of going, what went wrong? Make it never happen again. And when I discovered safety two as a concept, it sort of intuitively made sense to me. But one of the phrases I remember from, it was actually from an SRE con. I remember exactly the talk. So this isn't my phrase at all, but it really captured my understanding of really what is an incident and why are we having them and what do we do about them was when... I think it was someone from Netflix said in a talk that you, i.e. you working in your company, have the best people to build the thing that you build. You know, there is no one better on the planet to build an instant IO, for instance, and to run it and to operate it and to understand how it works. No one else understands the data model. No one else understands the unique quirks of that customer that is reporting that problem. And that really just almost flips the logic to me in my head of actually my team is coming to work to do the best job that they possibly can do sometimes that goes wrong sometimes you have an incident but i think playing to ai ai can solve the general problem but it still doesn't have until it's very specialized and understands the in terms of a business does it actually understand the nuances of this ultimately special snowflake system that we all have that's all going to be different and all have its own design criteria and quirks and considerations that need to be taken into account yeah, I think in particular, it's the kind of, it could probably do a pretty good job of, in general principle terms, telling you how to solve the problem, right? But it's in the same way that I could tell you, like, first, what do you already know? Second, like, you know, what do we not know that we need to find out? But it's the the fact that every single system is so different and that you're, it generally your incidents do not happen because of really obvious and common things. Your incidents happen because of the edge cases or the unexpected, right? And that's where AI is literally, is not specifically designed to necessarily handle that, right? It's Novel incidents are good, in my view. Another mantra that I have with my team is keep it boring. This is stolen again from deviation, but I don't want to be in a situation where we have to use our superior experience to kind of engineer our way out of a solution or out of a problem. Let's just keep it boring and reserve 50% of our mental capacity for when it does go wrong and we actually have some, some space to understand why it's broken. Yeah, 100%. I think that applies to, yeah, I guess this is what you're saying, but to teams generally, right? It's kind of, it's interesting when you're hiring as well, you, you get people who are talk to them and they'll be like, so tell me about all the like really, really exciting underlying technology that you use at Instant I know. I'm like, honestly, I don't want exciting. I don't want my infrastructure to be exciting. I, I want to use all of our kind of the team's smarts and capabilities to build amazing stuff for customers. I do not want like the fun of running on some incredibly new novel edge database. And it's like, nah, it's like mostly like Postgres, Go, 
TypeScript on the front end. Obviously, there's a lot of thought and a lot of smart stuff that goes into that. But it's like, if you're coming here to use the latest and greatest, our job is reduce incidents. And I can tell you exactly where that's going to lead. So it's kind of, yeah, could not agree more with you there, Matt. I cannot tell you how happy I was when we when we started this company and the prospect of there not being Kubernetes in the mix. I was just like, <laughs> I can focus on the bits that I really, really care about. And no shade generally on Kubernetes, like clearly wildly, wildly successful piece of technology and like does incredible things. But like, I think, I think it's exactly it. It's like you have so many cognitive cycles and you want those going on the bit that's most high leverage. And like that applies for like normal work as much as incidents, either one. I absolutely agree in startup culture. Be an interesting conversation as to whether you think that you would need to adopt an architecture of that, maybe to own your own platform as you grow and get bigger and to have more stability over the stack. But I certainly have come to the conclusion that if I want to do fun, novel, exciting things, I'll do it in my home lab. I'll run personal projects of my own. And largely, as I've stepped away from being a hands-on engineer, that's also what I've done to keep my skills up. I'll, you know, I'm doing my event of code 2022 at the moment, and I'm learning Rust. So but I'm actually really enjoying <laughs> yeah, I have a lot of respect. I, I started learning Rust and and then sort of my, like many other evening side project things kind of got squashed by starting a business. But yeah, I've got another friend that carried on and occasionally I catch up with him and he just he just raves about it. And it's kind of, I, it says a lot of things that sound incredibly smart and I go, mm, yeah, that does sound good, but also <laughs> I, I have no time. <laughs> yeah, Pete's like, well, I spent my day in a spreadsheet. So yeah, you know, I mean, l- take legit, your Rust. it's like, you know, that's often the response. Yeah. That's also really interesting about how much engineering work is not perhaps what we all would have naively imagined before we came into this industry. If we go right back to the beginning of our careers, I remember um, being a very junior engineer in a company and, and thinking, what do all the senior people do? They just seem to sit in meetings all day. I'm not sure if I thought exactly this way, but I'm, you know, I'm being a little bit flippant, but I can write code quicker than them. What is this? And it's only over time that you suddenly realize that, and you gain that humility that Engineering is not about writing code. Engineering is about solving problems. And in many cases, solving those problems may not involve writing a line of code, right? But let's understand the problems that humans have. Let's be net positive contributors to society within the scope of the organizations that we work within and figure out how we sustainably build that culture moving forward. And I do fundamentally believe that that's that's something I want from every engineer that I work with an understanding of how they can add value every day and how they can come to work and make the world the company the human condition a better place yeah oh wow we found the little like you know sound bite for this this yeah. podcast <laughs> yeah. matt preaches matt preaches but like it's a genuinely really interesting point that around like solving problems and that's it's one of the reasons that we've ended up calling engineers here, not like back-end engineers, front-end engineers. They are all product engineers because the thing to do is to build the product. It's like everything is product backwards. Like engineering is clearly hugely important, but it's like the implementation detail beneath the sort of the value that our customers care about and that we care about as a company. But yeah, so I think a lot of podcasts of this nature, they often ask the question of like, you know, tell me about your worst incident. And I I love the stories, but I would like to go in a slightly different direction. And I hope you have a, a good answer for this, Matt. Otherwise it will fall very flat. But tweaking that question a little bit, like is there an incident where you feel like you had an incredibly creative fix to get something back online, for example? Yeah, actually two incidents pop into my head and they're for very different circumstances. One of them is just an interesting story. The other one, 
I like because it's a three byte change to <laughs> the best kind. <laughs> three bytes, four lines of code change to take a system that was essentially hard down back to operational. So I was working in a company and we had a request response system with a worker in the back end. And unfortunately, an engineer had refactored the dispatch queue that dispatches tasks off to workers. And the exact details escaped me. But essentially, uh, the engineer had gone through, they'd refactored this code. Um, It was quite coupled code for reasons not of their making. And they were trying to improve that. As we all know, we sometimes write solutions that we're not necessarily proud of, but they achieve the purpose and they get something done and they're a proof of concept and then go back and iterate. And unfortunately, what manifested to us was a saturated system that had just the throughput just went through the floor. And of course, we could roll the thing back, but we couldn't come to the bottom of like, why is this commit on main broken and this one isn't? And there was quite a big change in there. And of course, we could just roll the change back, but people have built on top of it. At that point, didn't have a release on green culture. So it changes had accrued and it was going to be very difficult to back it out. And anyway, the long and short of it was we had dropped, due to some nested function calls, the word go and a space before a, a function call. And for, for anyone who's not familiar with Go, <laughs> a Go routine is like a lightweight thread that gets scheduled by the Go runtime. And not typing Go means that you are going to run that function call on the dispatch thread rather than spawn a new thread that will get spun up um, for the purposes of handling that unit of work. And it was one of those cases where it was so obvious when you found the problem. It was that six stages of debugging, that this is impossible and that doesn't happen on my machine and so on. And then you just see this change that had been dropped and you go, oh, that was it. And it was funny, I was actually talking to my team uh, because we had a, uh, we were joking yesterday about the most value that you can add through the fewest lines of code change in a PR. And I asked them, I said, give me the most impactful incident you've solved, measured as the fewer bytes that you change, the higher the score, and then multiply it by the impact where zero is like nothing was wrong and 1.0 is system was hard down. And um, I don't want to, you know, uh, blow my own trumpet, but I think that one scores quite highly that we essentially had a saturated system doing no work at a three byte change. The other fun incident that I had, and it was actually in the same system, but that was where we had a whole bunch of really unfortunate scenarios happen that resulted in one user on the end of a dodgy internet connection due to some weird request response acknowledgements and TCP getting all involved in what it does and message replays and so on, where they managed to tear the system down for everyone. Essentially, it was similar to your recent blog post where we had a poison pill with an unfortunate deployment oversight that meant only one replica of a service to process that thing was running coupled with a message broker that if you have a protocol error on its control channel it will tear down the whole connection but it will give you three seconds multiplied by the number of open channels you have to this thing so channel is like a was a, 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 a client in our case so we just had this thing just sat there spinning for about 15 minutes before the process died, and then we could respawn. And then, of course, the poison pill went again, and then you denied yourself. And I remember my instant report. It's probably one of the proudest instant reports that I've written in my career. It was like I spent uh, 24 hours writing this thing, but I went right to the line of code where I could say, oh, yeah, that's three seconds times the number of active connections. Look, this is why it hung for 15 minutes. And it was just, again, a I can explain to you in gory detail, exactly what happened and what all of the contributing factors to this incident was and why the 
and responded the way it did. And it's so satisfying. It should not be someone on the end of a dodgy three G, you know, three G connection on a bus in rural Devon that causes your whole system to go unavailable. <laughs> Those are the most fun incidents that you can talk about after the fact. You go, well, you know, I cut my engineering chops on resolving this, and that was that was good. I think that being being able to track it down to the the like being able to. Oh, it's, it's like finding that smoking gun is just so satisfying. I was talking to one of our engineers who had a problem yesterday where they're just like, look, I mean, we fixed it and it's all fine, but I don't know why. And so I can't sleep. And it's, it's when you, when you can go, it's definitely this. I remember like my, one of my personal, I will never get over this incidents was like, there's a quite significant or like a significant one internally at Monzo. And I remember doing the debrief with you, Chris, where like I'd gone so, so de- off the deep end on like trying to figure this out. And like, I'd built like a traffic modeling simulation in like go playground. And like, we sat in the debrief and I was like, here's like literally a visual ASCII animation in go playground of the traffic scenario I think has happened, but I cannot prove it. I can't prove this. I'm like nine out of 10 sure this is what it is but I will never be able to prove that that's what it was. And it's just so frustrating. So when you do get that light, you know, that light bulb moment of, oh my God, oh, the numbers work. And that's why it was this. And that's why it was this. It's just like, yeah, I'm very jealous. I think some people see it as wasted effort. You got the system back up and running. Why are you doing all this? That's done, right? Yeah. But of course, you don't know when it's going to happen again. And quite often we get lucky in these things. They only impact us for a short time, but it's, it's that innate curiosity in an engine. And that knowledge and understanding of what normal looks like in that system to be able to go, that isn't right. And quite often you get proto incidents that don't manifest into incidents because someone looked at it and went, hmm, that's odd. Why are we doing this? Why is that traffic going over there? It shouldn't be able to. Or why is that logging that line that's unusual? And again, it just comes back to people having familiarity with the status quo and and what normal what what good looks like you know i do but there is normal is not a word there is no normal but i guess there's a steady state in our systems and then there's the uh, non-steady state behavior or elastic and plastic behavior maybe to steal a physics term and uh, it's really important to create the space and the culture for people to go and have those investigations because it probably saves your bacon in the future Plus using open source, I'm a big advocate for that. The only reason I found that three-second thing was because we were using a component that I could go and read the source code. Quite often we just hide behind abstractions, but sometimes you actually need to understand what pushing the clutch does and how the engine works internally. And even if you can't build one yourself, understanding what it does can help you be a better engineer in the process. Yeah, absolutely. It's that that why I think is the really important bit, which is kind of, you know, are you satisfied with I know what it did? Or do you have that compulsive need to go, but I don't know why it did it. And it's often what you find out is like, actually, the outcome's still the same, but maybe the reason it happened was totally opposite to what you thought. It's like, you know, you assumed the system behavior. It kind of wouldn't have mattered because the incident's now over. The problem is when it happens again, you go, oh, yeah, I know why that happens. And it's like, no, you don't know why that happens. You know, it's like, yeah, that queue was backed up. It's like, oh, that's just because this. That's where kind of, you know, what can feel like a useful shorthand can suddenly mean that, you know, the classic is someone goes, oh, it's probably this. And then half the incident spent looking in the wrong place. And when you've got someone that does that real like, oh, no, I want to understand the system. Like actually, then spreading that knowledge of how the system works is the thing that mitigates the next incident, not knowing what happened and that it got better. And yeah, I really like the concept of the gamma knife. So for anyone not familiar, essentially, I think we all, well, I'm in company that won't see it like this, but we all have this tendency as humans in post hoc analysis to go, oh, this happened because this, and then that led to that. And you, t- you tell a very linear chain of events. 
But actually, life doesn't work that way. You know, humans are all distributed systems. We're all engineers. We're all sort of only partially ordered with each other. And there's this concept of the gamma knife. I can't remember who came up with it. But essentially, see every action that someone does as a zap of radiation just firing off. And most of the time, they don't align, right? They, you know, someone deployed, zap. Someone logged into the production database to run a query, zap. Most of the time, they run select star from users semicolon and nothing goes wrong but occasionally they do update thing and they screw the where clause up and they update everything and you know all these are little zaps of radiation that are going on a gamma knife is a concept for treating for example brain tumors where if you focus all that radiation on one point then it can have a much greater impact and essentially i like to see incidents as when all of that radiation concentrates in one place it was all still there it was all still happening but most of the time your people are creating conditions for success and it's not aligning and it's only when all of those stars align that's a very linear way of looking at it but only when all of those zaps align that suddenly you go oh that's an incident and we need to go and look at it and i think that changes the logic and certainly how perhaps non-technical actors often look at it that it's not how can we prevent this ever happening again by stopping people and assuming that it was human error that led to it you still need people to be able to perform those actions in their day-to-day job but it's about them having that understanding of how it could have wider impact than just the objective that they're looking at kind of you know think outside the box what's the problem that could happen here and only through having understanding of the system and how it fits together and having a well-designed system can you start to comprehend that i love that yeah if it, it fits really naturally as like my mental model of of how these things merge which is just like the best incidents are the ones where like sort of continuing that you've got these these zaps and you've got people who have independently in their sort of day job been curious about what underpins those those little like independent events that are sort of emergent across your whole system and it's like the intuition leads to experience people are like cool i've seen how this works when things work right and then that experience can sort of be extrapolated into intuition so when something then goes wrong that's sort of slightly outside the immediacy of those things you're like cool well I'm up to this level, like level nine with my sort of understanding. And so now I've just got to make this little extra leap, which is often quite easy. And it's those those things there, which if you weren't curious in the first place, you didn't really understand what was happening in these independent things. You are in an absolute world of pain and have definitely been there in the past. But but then incidents of this fantastic way of like, even when you, you've had that pain, you're like, okay, no one was curious or no one even knew that thing existed. There's such a good spotlight to go and like dig into those things and go, cool, well, we're going to, that's a new vector that we can explore where we get very good at this thing and then next time something in the, in the domain of whatever it might be is going to be that little bit easier to deal with but yes listen we are rapidly running out of time and i feel like i could chat for hours so maybe we maybe we get you back at some point in the future matt and we can uh, love continue the that. conversation nice nice well listen thanks uh matt matt from zigloo genuinely appreciate you taking the time it's been a lot of fun and we'll chat soon yep thank you for having me and uh, it's been a pleasure yeah likewise thanks so much matt